My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Hilder. Welcome back to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. Pardon the break in protocol, but I want to start this episode off with a personal flashback back to, let's say, 1997. Your host is watching MTV, a program called The Jenny McCarthy Show, and the Benfolds 5 is in the midst of tearing through one angry dwarf and 200 solemn faces. I've always been drawn to trios, and I have to suspect that this particular viewing cemented something in my head about how clear and dynamic a three-piece can sound. It was captivating, from Fold's sardonic lyrics and roughshod manner on the piano, to the fuzz bass of Robert Sledge and the Animal Man drums of our guest this week on the show, Darren Jesse. By the way, if you look up The Jenny McCarthy Show on Wikipedia, you will find a very brief entry and uh, an even briefer dismissal that simply reads, the show was critically panned. And yeah, it's properly cited. Of course, Jesse has been very active since those bygone cable TV afternoons. To start, he has worked with a number of previous transmissions guests, including Sharon Van Etten and His Golden Messenger, as well as others like The War on Drugs, Josh Rouse, and Chris Stamey. In 2004, he founded a band called Hotel Lights, and in 2018, he began releasing music under his own name. His latest is called Central Bridge, and it was released earlier this year. On this episode of Transmissions, Darren joins me for a freewheeling talk about influences, lyrics, creative process, and his time on the road with Ben Folds 5. We discuss a wide range of artists along the way. People like Tom Waits, Joni Mitchell, Judy Sill, Gordon Lightfoot, and we spend a lot of time reflecting on Neil Young. Along the way, we inspect the notion of how songs change and shape our views, the tenor of the culture wars back in the 90s, and the value of occasionally overdoing it. Before we get into it though, if transmissions and all the other independent cultural work we do at Aquarium Drunkard means something to you, you can support us by pledging over on Patreon. There, you'll allow us what we need to continue making this show, paying our contributors, and keeping those servers humming. Check out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon, and a major thank you to all of you who already pledge. We deeply appreciate your support. Okay, let's get into it. Darren Jesse, here on Transmissions. Parked out on the last road Where the planes take off and land Give the keys to your mom Put them in a hand Some common memories that just were. If I could have picked anyone else, it wouldn't have been her. Will that be enough when you get what you want? Will that be enough when you're right? Well, thanks so much for taking the time to join us here on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. It's a real pleasure to have you on today. Oh, thanks. It's it's great to be here. I was listening to uh, the latest record, your latest solo record, Central Bridge, and I was really struck by the song Love and Thanks, because I love 
songs about music or are sort of rare, you know, in certain ways, or maybe not, not, maybe not rare. They're part of an old tradition, I think, but, but I don't feel like we have them quite as much anymore. You know, these songs that sort of extol the connections that art can create for us as listeners. And you cite different people in that. Uh, I think the lyric is Keith and Judy, Bob Freewheel and John and Casey, you know, all these different folks. So before we get too far into it, I got, I, I didn't, look up who the keith is so i just i'm guessing is it is it toby keith is it uh is it keith hudson the dub the dub guy who who's who's keith so it's keith richards okay uh, okay he's one of my a very traditional keith yeah kind of my hero in in the rock world and uh judy sill is the well you could yeah combining keith with with judy is inspired because in some ways he feels like this flame that seems impossible to extinguish, you know? And I mean that in, obviously, Long May He Run. Yeah. I hope he outlives us all. But um, but Judy, somebody whose flame burned a little quicker, you know? And uh, so that, that, that's, a, that's a great... But when did you get into her work? I'm a huge, I'm a huge Judy Sill fan. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I the first Judy Sill record I really became obsessed with was her self-titled album and um I, it's still my favorite of her catalog but it's all great and um yeah i don't really know when i picked that album up it's probably 10 or 15 years ago yeah okay so it was somebody who you discovered more recently than you know somebody but how about keith were you listening to the stones as like a kid basically yeah the stones have sort of always been in all our lives and a big part of my life and um but to go back to your point about songs like that it it is a bit old-fashioned and i think um it there's it it it, there's almost like a a, takes a little bit of courage to be that tender uh about just acknowledging people who inspired you and uh, kind of made you want to be an artist um yeah we're living in an age where feelings need to be really intense in a song and so it takes a little courage to do something that is a different emotional platform um and i think at the end of the song you know when it says maybe you know i think there's a sweetness to that that ties it all together um but uh, I like names in songs. I just think I've always liked that. I can't remember the title, but there was this great zombies song that just listed a bunch of names. And sure. I remember being younger and just liking that. There's something about a name that glues it to... And it, it, even if you're uh, listening to that song and you don't know that I'm talking about musicians, uh, you might just think, oh, he's out, you know... Uh, at uh swimming at a reservoir with his friends and you know you wouldn't really know sure yeah no that's a beautiful i like that ambiguity because it's true i guess if you don't know who those names represent they just become characters you know i think about how how so many of my favorite creative people in general utilize names you know uh i think somebody like david lynch right like where there's always sort of these like they don't go out a, a huge part of Twin Peaks the last season. I don't know if you watched it. I love I love David Lynch. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But a huge part of it would be these parts where you'd see the characters sitting in the the roadhouse and they would just be talking about people who we don't even know on the show. You know, they're using just like names. Yeah. And and I think that you're right. There's kind of a it's kind of a um it's a cool way to induce that part of your brain that makes you wonder who are these people and then because the way our brains work we just start immediately imagining something you know um, yeah and to me that's cool yeah well thanks yeah and i agree with you and uh i think for artists they might see that it's a song about a life in music with some gratitude and also the fact that you just really never know uh, <laughs> like uh, <laughs> yeah but um for other people, they can just, they might know someone named Keith. They might, it just might stir up some 
feelings for them. Um, sure. Some association. Yeah. 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 Um, I like too that you're that you're talking about expressing gratitude because you know I know as it's been said on this podcast and and so many others it sometimes it feels passé to talk about the pandemic you know but in a weird way <clears throat> I've been starting to question whether or not that there's truth to that you know because it was such a massive thing that we've all been going through and it isn't you know, yeah. it's it's over in some ways, but in so many other ways, it's an unfolding process still. But for you to, I'll use the kind of the term pandemic album in air quotes for, uh, you, you know, the, the purposes of this conversation, but for you to come out and think like, I think to come out with something that really has a, a, a gracious and, and a spirit of gratitude to it, you know, for the connections that music has made for you and the and the and the ways that it's worked in your own life i I find that very very beautiful because i think everybody for one you know one way or the other you found yourself thinking about what matters and what's interesting and what keeps you you know centered in in because so much of our daily routine was upended so for you to sort of have this almost Griel Marcus-esque sort of litany of these artists who have, you know, contributed to your, to your really, I mean, probably your artistic well-being. It's, it's really, it's cool. I like that concept of gratitude as a, as a motif because it's, again, kind of a rare one because, like you said, yeah. there is some, uh, there's some vulnerability to that, you know? Yeah, it's a different emotional landscape, so not everyone is comfortable with that. I think we live in an era where... Yeah. We live in an era where people have a lot of strong feelings about relationships and a certain, uh, um, well, culturally, there's just a lot of stuff that would um, not fit in with the idea of showing a little gratitude. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, But um, I can't remember. I'm sorry. uh, No, it's okay. I just like that that concept of gratitude. And I, I well, I was curious. You know, you're somebody who has been making music now for a long time, multiple decades, and yeah. and your songs, you know, on your solo records, on Hotel Lights records, you know, on Ben Folds Five records, have obviously reached people and have connected with listeners in lots of ways myriad of ways i wonder if you know in terms of that that sense of gratitude has it ever happened where you've had a listener uh express some version of that to you about stuff that you've made and what is that feeling like and how does that feed into the spirit in which you deliver that song uh well thanks yeah um excuse me yeah, I, I have had people tell me that I've written their favorite song or to talk to me about how a song has just been like their companion for a time that they needed it. And yeah. my songs in those catalogs tend to be the more sort of thoughtful type. Uh, they're not ballads necessarily, but there's an introspection to them. And um, so that feels like the song is doing its stuff. <laughs> I mean, if, if yeah. you know, honestly, that's, that's a really great feeling. And um, as far as coming, as far as like, I wouldn't say this is a pandemic record, although we did record, start recording at a time when lockdowns were still just releasing, you know, um, so people mm-hmm. were still masking and stuff at stores, things like that. Um, but to show gratitude, just to step out with that as the first track. Um, and then the later verse, I was just kind of thanking people I traveled the country with and sure. times that we'd had. So it was just my way of like touching in with the spirit of music that has given me um, so much and uh, to be here with you today or to have lived the life that I dreamed and to just acknowledge that and it is partly within the tradition to do that but that has faded away a little um so we did it with our own spin with our own 
sound. So it is, it does have a kind of melancholy feel to it. Um, but um, it felt right after the pandemic because I was personally looking for ways to just lift my emotional landscape. Sure. And honestly, being grateful for things and feeling a sense of gratitude, it's just a great way to get your headspace back to where you can feel really inspired and begin to see like everything more clearly. Um, and I, I think that has been hard for people, you know, coming out of the pandemic when they lost so much. Yeah, no, for, for sure. That you mentioned the melancholy of it. And I mean, that's a, that's a theme that runs through, that's a thematic kind of element of your, of your songs, I think is that there's always a touch of, of wistfulness or, you know, a kind of a, that forlorn quality that is, I mean, it's really, it's really sweet. And it's, it's very, I went, I went back and listened to uh, the Jane room 217, you know, which was your, your first solo record under, under your own name. And I was struck by the fact that that's a very, that's even more kind of sparse and melancholy than this record. Uh, That one really has like a, a solitary quality, but there's all these hints of the orchestration that continues throughout, you know, and on this new record, that's a big part of it. I think about that sort of, um, the sort of windswept romance element of, of, of the records is, is really interesting to me, you know? And I wondered where that sort of thing is rooted for, for you, like growing up, I mean, do you remember hearing songs that sort of evoked that, melancholy inner landscape you know but sort of with a pop melody or something like that um well i think like the the early tom waits uh records um were really big for me and they do that in fact i had the tom waits um i used to have it on vinyl it's uh, his uh well i had it on cd for a while but it's um it's a collection of his maybe volume two and it was like demos for his first record and there's just something about how intimate it was and you know all the songs are there and they're great and um but that was important to me uh joni mitchell blue was a cd that was definitive in my life she's probably my favorite artist and that's why i started the song you mentioned with her and right john prine is also mentioned in that song um he he's not he was never afraid to work on different emotional landscapes and songs. And um, when he thanked someone, there was also this sense of melancholy to it as well. So um, I always responded to that stuff. I think because I toured, I started touring when I was younger and there's a lot of time when you're wearing headphones and you're by yourself. And the chaos of touring, especially in the, late nineties where things were very loud and you may remember band bands were angry. <laughs> I mean, they were, they were, they were very successful, but really angry. Um, but people responded to that. And, um, so I think a lot of records that were quieter became my companion and started to inform me of a, of a landscape as an artist that I would like to explore when I found the time, um, to, to work on it. And I, I right. just love the craft of songwriting it's uh, always been something that is endlessly fascinating. And I, l- lyrics are something I just really enjoy thinking about. You're somebody who, uh, and I, I do want to talk a little bit more about your days touring in the 90s, but, but we'll get there in a second. You're somebody who, in addition to making your own records and writing your own songs, has worked with other songwriters as a drummer, you know, and in a percussive capacity. Obviously, uh, you play on the 2017 uh, His Golden Messenger record, Hallelujah Anyhow, which I really, I love that album. Um, And I've seen, and I saw you live with uh, His. I was trying to think, I think that I remember seeing you set up your turntable to spin some records. And on top of that, I saw your your Judy Sill vinyl. Uh, There you go. So, um, but we were deep in the tour at that point. So I don't don't remember if we stopped to talk, but um, 
touring musicians are a certain breed where their whole day is built around making sure when they perform they're in their best place oh totally totally and i think it's well so yeah that leads me to just kind of to to hit on this idea of when you are on the road with people you know you have the ability to get in your own headphones and just sort of exist in your own world mm. um but also you're interacting with other people you know and like in the band and I think there's this is I'm curious for if you found that there's a spirit of trading back and forth sort of like reference points or ideas or like, hey, I was just listening to this. This part's really sick. I mean, is that still a big part of it for you when you are on the road with with people? Yeah, I love turning people on to I mean, I'm, I'm ahead. I, I love records and I love turning people on to new music. I mean, as far as the his crew goes, those guys are kind of record collectors as well um right you remember turning them on to the bill fox early records and that went over pretty well and bill fay um oh yeah but uh i just love also i mean um i i think drums is just a great instrument and i love the air around the drum set and um I think modern reco- modern recordings are moving away from that a little, and I yeah. And so I think that's part of why I've been f- feeling uh, more connected emotionally to songs because there's still some air and wonder around it, and it's performative. Um, a lot of drumming these days, uh, in, in my experience, is. Um, well, for example, when you think back to like some great records or like even a Nick Drake record, you hear all the air around the drum set. You hear, yeah. you hear a person performing and it's a beautiful arrangement and there's probably no edits in it. And they, right. they just were that good. And so I kind of grew up thinking that way. And so all the early records were performances and I like the way that sounds. Um, as far as where things are going right now, I don't think it will stay this way forever, but it seems like performances on drums are not as exciting for people as sequencing and sort of, um, well, producers are sort of moving things around and pro tools. And, and so, yeah, it sort of takes as a player, it takes away a little bit of the thrill, you know, because I'm confident whether it's you know, Aretha Franklin, or even like Towns Van Zandt, I'm confident they went in and performed. Right. That's what got me excited about the instrument. No, for sure. And there's something that I I wanted to note on, and I was leaning towards this earlier when I mentioned, obviously, you've worked with Hiss, you've worked with Sharon Van Etten, you've worked with uh, The War on Drugs, obviously, a very defined singer-songwriter at the core of that group, you know? But uh, I think that there is such a thing as bringing a songwriter, songwriterly quality to percussive parts, too, you know? And when I went back and listened to some of Hallelujah Anyhow, I, I found myself thinking a lot of the the drums on Tom Petty records, so Stan Lynch, maybe, or... Uh, Ferone, Steve Ferroni? Steve Ferrone, Steve Ferrone, yep, you're right. But I, I think about how the drums on a Tom Petty record feel songwriterly to me, you know? They're, 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 they're written and performed with the song as a sort of breathing thing in mind. And I understand what you're saying about you know, the way producers can move things around now and nudge it or, you know, track it to the grid and snap it into place and all of a sudden everything is right where it needs to be. And there's people creating fascinating, incredible music like that, you know, but there's also totally, I think, room for... That's one thing that I have thought a lot about with this AI stuff, right? Or these varying, like... um these computerized learning things that were essentially no offense to you or any other instrument player in the world, you could probably generate some sort of synthetic version of it. Right. And, and, and most people wouldn't know. Yeah. It makes me wonder though, if we're going to be in a place where 
there's a premium put on performance too as an almost countercultural stream of things, you know, because I think that that exists. You know, jazz has not gone away. You know, jazz continues to live. Yeah, you bring up some really great, interesting topics and points with that. And and, um, a part of the reason why I ended up in all the bands that you mentioned is because I'm a songwriter and I understand the moments of songs. I understand yeah. when it should be, when it should breathe, and honestly, I I love lyrics so much. I know the moment to touch on, and I can generally put an arrangement together that makes a songwriter very happy pretty quickly because that's important to me too. Some yeah. instrumentalists don't really love songs; they love the technical side of performing, and that's wonderful. Sure, that's wonderful too, but it might not be the best thing if you're just trying to get, you know, a song across, uh, as far as, yeah, jazz now is, is still going on. So people clearly love, you know, the performative aspects of all instruments. And it will be interesting to see if recording gets back around to the courage of going in with a great arrangement and, and performing it and, and just, cap- yeah. just capturing it like so many of our favorite records. Because when I talk about the air around it, I think that stuff is important. Without it, without the space, it, it, things can be fatiguing. Um, yeah. But to your point, uh, you know, I, I do think a lot of wonderful art is being made um, in all kinds of ways. And there's not like a better way um i just know yeah there is no there is no one way but there are pluses and minuses to all the ways right yeah um so i i just know the records that i liked and when i heard yeah. not even like uh even the bill withers stuff or whatever it's just clearly just really soulful like smart and um emotionally reactive performing and um i just i really like that stuff um yeah me it's really challenging to me that's a little more challenging than just cutting things up on a computer and um but that's just not really my interest is all is all it is sure yeah i like writing and i like performing well we touched on it earlier but when i first encountered your work was the Ben Folds Five. And I guess I was going back, I guess this would be like the 30th anniversary of the band forming. Is that right? Uh, that's probably right. I happen. 19, 1993. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. Which is, which is wild, but also really interesting because some of the stuff you're talking about, I think, as a songwriter of this new project, it's it's clear that you have continued to grow and expand. But like l- listening back to that early stuff too, um, as a young person encountering Ben Folds Five on MTV, uh, so many of the things you're saying were apparent to me then. You know, like that's a band where the rhythm section, uh, you and Robert Sledge are, uh you're doing so much, right? Like, uh, I, when I say doing so much, I don't mean technically you're doing a lot, although sometimes you are. Yeah, that's um, the power of trios. When you look at all the classic trios, y- y- everyone has to sort of provide more. A five-piece band, you just find your spot and you stick with it. Right. A trio, everybody's exposed and everybody has to bring yeah, you have to keep the essential quality. Yeah, you have to keep it interesting. And so, you know, you have a limited amount of people. So I think trios are, was the perfect format for me and for someone like Robert. Um, yeah. We enjoy um, breaking the rules and, and kind of overdoing it and having a lot, <laughs> having a lot of fun with it. Um, you know, so that was perfect. That fuzz tone on the bass sometimes, I mean, that to me was was so electrifying sounding because I remember being like, 
I really like guitars, but I think I really might like a distorted bass even more. It sounds so cool, you know? Um, that was a... But I also... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, that, that, I think that is part of the definitive part of the sound. But what really makes that work is that there's no guitar. So if you think about the fuzz working against the sound of a grand piano, which has like a grand piano historically has a lot of thunder in the low end. Yeah. Most people you'll see play the grand piano do play ballads on it. And that, that's great. Um, but if you look back to Little Richard or, you know, even early Elton John, there's a lot of thunder going on. So when you add distorted bass to that in the era of the 90s, it just sounded right. And it, it was kind of like a thrilling sound. Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and... As an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and of course add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Part of what makes Ben Folds 5 so interesting to me is that you were a kind of like a nation of one as a group, right? Like there wasn't another band that sounded just like Ben Folds 5. And I I was going back and looking at, I mean, maybe there are some antecedents. You mentioned Elton John. Um, you know, certainly there were piano rock people in the past, but... Randy Newman. Randy Newman, another great, you know, sort of antecedent and really one of my favorite songwriters. Uh, somebody who I think Ben has a lot in common with, uh, not just on the piano, but as a song songwriter and lyricist. Um but I was looking back at, like, you guys toured with all sorts of groups, right? I went back and I was looking at, like, the Lollapalooza 96 lineup, and it's, like, Soundgarden, Metallica, Screaming Trees, uh, even the Ramones. Yeah. But then also, strangely, Waylon Jennings. So there was, I think, and then I looked at the Horde lineup, right, where that was the, I forget what Horde was an acronym for, but I know it was... Uh, I don't remember... But so many groups, you know, yeah. from Dave Matthews to Blues Traveler to Morphine. And I found myself thinking, like, one, you mentioned that there were so many heavy acts at the time. And I would love to hear you reflect on the sort of um, what it was like to be a piano band in an era of big guitars on one hand. But then also... It also seems like the 90s were a time where like a weird art project that didn't sound like everything else could still end up on a major label and score certifiable hits. You know what I mean? And so I'm struck by like, I feel like the heavy guitars were there at the beginning of the 90s. Then there was sort of an opening where there was more diversity. And then the heavy guitars came back in the form of new metal. And then that was that. Is uh, help, me, help me walk through all of this. Well, I, yeah. Um, well, what I would highlight out of what you said is that the, there was most of my life, the whole point of being in a band was to sound like nobody else. And mm -hmm. conversations we used to have were like, what can we do to sound, to have our own sound and be like nobody else? That, that That's a rare conversation these days. I, I feel like actually the conversation now is driven towards how can we fit in and so that era there was a lot of diversity in the sound uh, of bands because it was encouraged because you wanted to have your own angle um and um but you know i was pretty young and i just followed 
I was just having fun and just sure it led to another. And, um, so, you know, it's not like we got together and, and said, you know, we, 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 we knew that we didn't want to have guitars and that we wanted to be a trio. And so that in itself was pretty great. And like you said, there was no other real, um, grand piano players and, um, the only there was a band called quasi which may still be playing and they were a trio for a while that i think he played like a wurlitzer through amps and and they were kind of rocking um and i liked them um they're great um but that's sam coombs and and janet weiss from sleater kenny yeah yeah Yeah. they're still around they put out a great record this year oh awesome i'll i'll listen Uh, i first met them when we toured with elliot smith and they were his backing band um Right. But um so there were people out there in in, in a trio without guitars, but um and, and morphine was another one that didn't have a guitar player. Um but anyway, I just think uh it was a time when people it was a time of bands. It was a time of being in a band, and um that was what you wanted, and that's what everyone was excited about. And so we got a lot of great bands and you know even bands like Radiohead were like, they made great music and it was on the radio. It was the commercial thing. And so bands were everywhere. And um, that's, that's just, we wanted to be a part of it in our own little way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then as far as sort of holding your own against these mega amp bands i mean do you guys i mean because again the fuzz bass was gnarly and it wasn't subtle all the time it could you guys rocked out too you know yeah do you remember having a a sense of that like not competition but sort of an understanding that like we're gonna go out there and like kind of like really really amp it up i remember i feel like one of the first things i saw was maybe a a performance on the maybe the Jenny McCarthy show, unless I'm making this up. And there was like total piano slamming. It was, it was, it was not, uh, not unaggressive. You know what I mean? Uh, we were loud in our own way. I mean, I I was, I was into the, like in a, in a way, like the explosiveness of like Keith Moon and, um, you know, but Charlie Watts and Ringo were kind of like my heroes, but like, um, sure. I was into, um, you know, we were, we, we got pretty crazy and played pretty fast and pretty loud. And so we were, you have, we were a part of, we were young and we were a part of what was going on and informed by it. Um, so as far as like loud, uh, commercial metal bands, I just, honestly, I didn't, if I wasn't into something, I just didn't really even know about it. Like I would just see it and then keep looking you know um sure so uh but it was just like a really fun time like i said because um it was just like a time of bands and it was not a time of pop singers um you know which is which is which is also great but it's just that wasn't happening then so much i feel like when we were talking earlier about songs that people uh have connected to I mean I remember having a sense of brick being one of those songs that was it really um I felt like it spoke to this like it set this scene and spoke to this very vulnerable emotional moment you know uh I was a pretty young kid I had not experienced anything uh like it's you know sort of uh the the content of the song itself right but i understood the gravity of the song itself on a kind of primal level and i know that a lot of people have you know that's a song where you were involved in coming up with a real specific part of the song and i wondered if you could just tell me I, i i'm always curious and the truth is it's rare that we have people on the show who have a, a song that ubiquitous, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm curious for you if you had a sense while it was coming together of, like, did you have an inkling this might be a huge song um, or, or, or what was going on in your head and, and what was that process like in terms of you contributing like a key melodic element to that one? Uh, well, thank you. Um, I, uh, 
I thought many of our songs were huge songs. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> You're the wrong guy to ask. Yeah. They were all they were all hits. <laughs> well, not all of them, but a few times. Um, I do remember being, in this, being while we were recording, hearing a playback and thinking to myself, wow, that's that's pretty big. It was nice to hear us play something that wasn't really brash. And it that band was a nice mix of humor and thoughtfulness. Um, and I think that song uh, is a very dignified hit. Um, you know, if you're going to have a hit that you just have one and you live with it forever, I think it's it couldn't have gone better. It's, it's really dignified. And, um, uh, as far as the song coming together, um, I had just, I was, you know, writing songs back then. And when Ben and I met, I was showing him some stuff that I was working on. And that chorus was one of them. And it just, resonated with him and he applied it to this song he had been trying to write and it and it and it just worked and um i think from a technical writerly standpoint um when you are writing a very specific story it keeps a person in their head and they can just follow along and they're right with you um lots of songs are good at that i mean a famous one yeah. Famous one like The Gambler or whatever, you know. Right. There are story songs and you're following it. The way you can have an emotional impact is to kind of confuse the listener by being slightly poetic or doing something that throws them off completely understanding. And so I think that's where that chorus really worked out because it pulled your emotions into your body a little because you weren't, yeah. you, weren't you were thrown off the story and you were like, oh, I it's just becomes an emotion all of a sudden. And then when he gets back to the story, it just continues to develop the weight of the whole thing. And um, I think it's a masterful bridge that he wrote. And I think the bridge is probably really the, if you were going to analyze it, one the highlight of the composition. Uh, however, every little detail in a song ultimately matters uh, in the end. And, um, it uh it just it's just one of those things i don't know it just happened yeah i mean it's fascinating to think about you know that again that a song of such consequence and difficult subject matter you know and honesty that that could be a huge hit i think also speaks to just in some ways how different the times are which isn't to say that modern pop isn't addressing existential dilemmas the execs in you know in various ways but it's kind of it's kind of a strange and it's also weird because in some ways it highlights the uh you know we have such a complicated relationship with decades past and it's always a form of revision and i think on some hands revision and and sort of like re retelling what was happening you know so on some level i think like wow a song that's dealing with you know abortion and and in a time when reproductive rights are under such difficult strenuous attack it's almost like you want to look back and be like look i mean we were we were honest open and honest about these things back in at this time and that's a better way to be you know and then there's you know but then there's another part about it where nothing about the song is really describing any sort of ethos or message or ideology it's a story you know it's yeah. just telling a human story exactly and it's a human story and, of that two high school kids went through it's not there's no political aspect to it and i think all of us are you know it's unfortunate we right now it seems like a time where there's no nuance around certain discussions and um everyone's got an opinion and everyone's got a platform for their opinion. Um, and opinions are somewhat meaningless. Um, <laughs> um, that was just a song that was uh, a courageous song. And it's uh, just a, a, a look at um, 
you know, what it felt like for, for, for him to, you know, go through that. Um, and so it, yeah. it was really more about the uh, emotions around it and than it was <laughs> trying to move the needle on anything. Of course, of course. It's just crazy to think back and to to see yeah. the ways in which, in some ways, it feels like there's been regressive, you know, tendencies. Oh in yeah, that's your point. But, yeah, no. I mean, I thought we were way past that stuff too. Um, I mean, I've been just like you, just completely stunned by um, just uh, how toxic politics <laughs> have become, and it's not really my world. I mean, I don't. I vote, uh, but I'm not going to get involved with the constant arguments about things. Yeah, I think what makes a, a human story or what makes a song such a beautiful human experience is that um, songs are a place where we can have, a, a, we can create a sp the kind of like space required to have complicated, messy, vulnerable human you know, interactions or explore those moments in humanity. Yeah. And to me, that's what makes, that's what makes music such a, a valuable thing is not just the utility of it being able to express that, but that it models for us, you know, a way in which you can, uh, you can look at the world with more curiosity and more, you know, sort of acceptance even. To me, that's what, that, I mean, because I remember, like, the the culture wars existed in the 90s, too, so I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish. Yeah. And I, I'm I, sure I, that, I'm sure you guys heard from some weird, some weirdos back in the day. Yes and no. I mean, I was 26 <laughs> seven. I was just having... Maybe you weren't, you weren't listening to the weirdos so much. Well, if you, the only way to get feedback in the mid-90s was to buy a magazine. Right. Uh, so if you didn't buy NME or what CMJ or Rolling Stone, you really weren't. I mean, you know, there was no Twitter. You could just uh, you're just out there living in the the real IRL. <laughs> yeah. um, but like I, I like all the things you're saying. And, uh, you know, th that song also always reminded me a little of something Neil Young might have tried to do. It's got a certain like, a, you know, those early um, yeah. Neil Young stuff, he's vulnerable and he's, you know, talking about his emotional landscape and um it's so funny you brought brought up neil young because i have neil young on the list too to talk to you about i know you're you're a huge neil young fan right oh, that's yeah. been somebody who's a real important one for you huge um uh I, I i picked up i think the first neil young thing i had outside of just hearing him was i had a cd called decades i don't know if you know this but it was, I do know decade decade was super important for me. Yeah. So that, that got me in and, um, we had the opportunity to tour with Neil Young and crazy horse and watch them. Work. Yeah. And that was amazing. And yeah, his economy with lyrics. Um, I, I really love that in writing and just, you know, he's just one of the best. He's just, just amazing. All the Canadian songwriters really do it for me. Yeah, where do you stand on Gordon Lightfoot? I have a lot of feelings for. I like Gordon Lightfoot an awful lot. Me too. It's interesting, you know, yeah, because I there's a, I have a friend who plays guitar who just gave me all his Gordon Lightfoot albums. Um, Gordon Gordon as a guitarist, he's incredible. He's like a locomotive, like on the twelve string. Like he's kind of like it's 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 insane how much he drives the songs forward. Neil's that way too, obviously. You know what I mean? Like even when he's on acoustic, there's kind of a a, a just a little rushing quality somewhat. Uh, it's really tough to put your finger on, but yeah. Um, I love Gordon Lightfoot. I think he's, well, obviously he's very successful, uh, but he is misunderstood slightly because I think he was just so consistently great uh, yeah. singing and playing it yeah i mean his singing is remarkable and he made so many good recordings um neil young sort of operated more in this sort of brooding uh melancholy place that really resonated with me uh when i was first getting into it as i've gotten older and listened to more records gordon lightfoot has really i've really grown to appreciate him more and more 
for just being a master. And uh, I do know that Bob Dylan was a big Gordon fan and that what he would like to hang out. And there is that classic clip of Joni Mitchell sharing her song Coyote, another masterpiece with Bob Dylan and they're at Gordon's house when it all goes down. So people should understand that Gordon Lightfoot is a part of the fabric of all that. And he's just, I think his voice is of its time a little more maybe than Neil Young who transcends it. Yeah, Neil has like this kind of voice that is its own thing that carves its own path, you know? And I mean, I love Neil so much and I would never dare to like uh compare them all that much because they're both master songwriters but to your point Lightfoot has a stereotypically beautiful sounding voice as well and a kind of fullness to it and a tunefulness that like he is one of those dudes who could sing a phone book and you would you would think wow he sure can sing that phone book you know but um but I think about Neil and I think about you're a young guy when you're on tour with Neil Young and Crazy Horse, and you're just experiencing this like world, the music world, the music industry. Yeah. Did you have a sense at all of Neil as an elder statesman, somebody who had navigated that world uh, for a long time without, most of the time at least, without having to kind of cave to uh, pressures from forces that were not artistic did you sort of view him that way at all or yeah absolutely yeah absolutely um he was fearless and you could the first thing you take away from him is that he has an internal compass that he trusts and he just goes for it and and does it um and um he had a revival at that time. It just coincided when we were coming up. Um, I don't know. It might have been mid-90s, late-90s, but there was a Crazy Horse revival that happened. Jim Jarmusch made a um, documentary. And so it was really wonderful. Um, Neil Young fans got a chance to see him touring the world. And um, they they were just incredible. I mean, it was just... An amazing experience. That Year of the Horse documentary is, I love it. I think it's a great film. It's been a long time since I've seen it. So were they filming that while you guys were on tour? I, I don't know. They may have been. I didn't. You didn't see Jim Jarmusch walking around with a camera? Uh, no, I, did, I didn't see that. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but it... it but you're right. The the '90s were a huge revivalizing moment for for Neil. It seemed to me like everybody, from you guys to Sonic Youth to Nirvana to Pearl Jam, anybody who would get a second would shout him out as like a forefather. He really was the grunge granddad, you know, in so many ways. Yeah, I think because we all those early, those records he made were so important to all of us, and so the bands that had a platform to tell their fans we're, we're doing that. And um, I mean, that's just, you know, the power of Neil Young's music that it, you know, he made so many great records and he made it, yeah. he made it look effortless. He just made it look so easy. No matter what you got in on, I know a lot of people jumped in on Harvest or if it was earlier, uh, um, it just, he made it look so easy. Yeah, yeah, that's like kind of his uh, his de uh, deceptive quality is that it all looks effortless, and then you realize like, no, Neil Young has to be very specific about what he does as Neil Young. Yeah. Did you did you guys did you ever get a chance to to speak with him on that tour or hang out at all? A little bit by catering, we we would sat together a couple of times, and um, yeah, it's it's intimidating sometimes for me um, around people that I admire that are that important to, to yeah. me. Um, and I just won't, don't want them to feel uncomfortable. So you just got to play it cool, right? <laughs> that's the, that's the sort of, uh, the, the tactic. Well, I was, I never really felt too cool, but I, I, um, I think, uh, yeah, you just kind of don't want them to feel like you need anything or whatever, but you right. might want to sneak a question in 
for them here or there. But to me, just having him ask, like, you know, what's for catering, what kind of made my day, you know, like. Yeah, of course. You know, I, he we had he saw me here. We had a reaction here and on Earth. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I want to as we wrap up, I wanted to to kind of circle back to this idea that so now it's been a couple of years since you've been making records under your own name, and I wonder if um, it really did feel to me like that solo debut. It seems like that was sort of the start of a of a new chapter in terms of what it is. I mean, I think the Hotel Lights records, I listened through those and and it's clear that you're writing songs you care about there, but it does feel like with this new sort of transition into this new era, like there, it's a little more specific and it's a little more, um, it feels more sort of uniquely you or, or, or more maybe slightly more revealing in certain ways. And I wonder if just to close, if you could reflect on that idea of, you know, was there something that it felt like there was a, a, a switch that got flipped when you sort of changed to putting out records under your own name? Was there anything to this, any significance to that act? There was, yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, Hotel Lights um, was, I insisted on everything being, like I sang all those vocals live and you know, yeah. That time it was a band, and the band performed uh, stuff, and that's just where my head was. Um, and but um, my solo records were kind of a reset to start making name, records under my name, and um, it was purposeful. Just as a writer, I felt like I knew what I was trying to do and um i um wanted to make records you know like like that pulled together that were experiences um top to bottom and i i feel like we've always tried to do that but um that it's you know an album experience so you would get the most from you know even the second record remover um you would get the most from just putting the whole record on and yeah and, and riding with it and having an experience with the album um and uh yeah the first record that you mentioned it's 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 definitely more sparse and more intimate and um i was living in brooklyn at the time and recorded a lot of it in my apartment and um, I liked the intimacy of it. I wasn't really interested in another studio recording. And, um, I've sort of been moving back towards fuller sounds. Remover is a very cinematic record and Central Bridge is, uh, you know, also a, a realized recording with rhythm section um but yeah. i think it's just like the song like my songwriting i just get to this place where i'm like how how can i you know i want to make a, a really great record and how how do these songs pull together to do that and then what would that sound like um you know to accomplish that yeah well that's great and there are so many beautiful songs on the new record i think of will that be enough i really i really like that one too that's another one that those lyrics are uh they feel a little uh, upsettingly poignant in some ways you know in a good way the way a great song kind of twists twists it in you a little bit that feeling that you have and being like yeah that's a good question you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah we uh so i really i really like what you what you do on that one thank you so much yeah i mean that's one of the things that's difficult about being a musician is that you're trained to just want more and more. Yeah. I think that just ask the question is like, at what point will you be happy with what, what you've contributed? <laughs> um, you know, um, so. Right. 
Well, I hope that you're happy with this record and what comes next. And uh, and also, I hope you're happy with this talk. I know I've really enjoyed it. And I appreciate you taking the time to chat and go over so much. It's been, it's been really fun covering all this ground with you. Oh, man, it's been so fun. Thank you so much for having me on. It's really, I'm really grateful for this chance to talk to you. So thank you. Thanks for listening to Transmissions. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce the show. Transmissions is edited by Andrew Horton. Art for the show this week was assembled by Dakota Brown. Our music comes from Frank Maston, drawn from his incredible discography. You can find more by visiting maston.bandcamp.com. The show's executive producer is Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard's founder. Don't miss his radio program, The Aquarium Drunkard Show, on Sirius XMU, Channel 35, at 7 p.m. Pacific Time each and every Wednesday. Transmissions is part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. Visit the TalkHouse for more interviews, fascinating reads, and podcasts. And hey, you've probably noticed another show here in the Transmissions feed. We're so pleased to present No Way Out, an oral history of sunburned hand of the man, Curated, hosted, and produced by J. Kelly Davis. We're so psyched to have him and all of the great people he's assembled for this Sunburned podcast um, in the cut. So be sure to check that out. And if you're down, leave a rating and a review, which helps other folks find shows like Transmissions and No Way Out. Next week on Transmissions, I will be joined by music journalist and editor Laura Snapes for a discussion about regionalism, transcendent moments, listening to music, the value of naming things, varying definitions of Americana, Aphex Twin, and much, much more. I hope you will join us there. Be well in the meantime. This transmission is concluded. (laughs) 